Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Amanda Dieserholt, PhD candidate at Edinburgh Napier University at the School of Applied Sciences. Her research looks at the symptomatology of fatigue from a Lacanian psychoanalytic perspective. So yeah, I thought I would talk about my research, which is on fatigue. Uh, and I'm currently in my fourth year of my PhD. Um, so trying to um, write it up uh, with the emphasis on trying to. Um, How did you get interested in the concept of fatigue and applying Lacanian psychoanalysis to it in the first place? Yeah, so that's a, a yeah great question. Um, so I think one of the things that really inspired my choice of topic, uh, and I guess even doing the PhD in the first place, because it aroused curiosity, uh, was reading Darren Leader and uh, David Corfield's book, How do Pe- Why Do People Get Ill? Mm-hmm. Not sure if you've yeah, heard about it. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so in it, they, they explain what we uh, like normally consider to be almost purely uh, biological conditions. Uh, but they look at how they're intertwined with subjective factors. Uh, so you probably know if you've if you've heard it and read about it. But just to but explain, the listeners don't know. Yes, just explain <laughs> to the listeners. Um, uh, so um, so yeah, the subjective factors in terms of like life events and thought processes, uh, or rather uh, thought processes about thought processes about and reactions to life events, um, how that can come to influence the onset and development of an organic condition. Um, so I think that in it they illustrate quite convincingly, you know, through case studies and, and things, uh, that anything happening in your body, you know, any illness uh, will be to a certain extent determined by these subjective elements. Um, and they also sort of uh, explore how uh, social cultural factors play a role in that, uh, you know, so how we think and talk about the body in society. Um, and different parts of the body and the mind-body relation, that that can also come to determine sort of the trend of uh, biological illnesses uh, at a given moment. Um, so I was really fascinated by this area um, because it opened up a new perspective of the mind-body relation, which I, I think is very much uh, missing today and needed, uh, you know, considering the huge mind-body divide we see uh, partly due to the popularity of biomedicine. Um, and then I was also interested in the potential link between psychoanalysis and medicine. Uh, so not necessarily in terms of let's bring the practice of psychoanalysis into the field of medicine, uh, but more like how can there be a, a di- as a question of how can there be a dialogue between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, and then, yeah, because as, as Lacan says, the, the practices of uh, psychoanalysis and medicine, like what they have in common is that they're both about responding to uh, the demand of a patient. Uh, so the demand uh, to be cured, to be fixed, or to provide an explanation to what's happening in their bodies. Um, yeah, and then I wanted to focus it more on a sort of mysterious symptom. Um, so where uh, yeah, like when I say symptom, I mean it in a like me- medical common sense, not ne- necessarily psychoanalytic. Um, so yeah, w- a mysterious one which was largely physical, so sort of, a f- but where there weren't any uh, strong suggestions of uh, an organic uh, manifestation or cause, uh, but neither were there any uh, link, any apparent link to like psychological factors such as an affective disorder. Uh, or states, I mean. Um, so, um, so I think that these kind of symptoms are kind of uh, increasing today, you know, through pain and fatigue, for example. Uh, so I thought that that was something uh, really fascinating and that sort of uh, needed to be explored uh, further and, uh, and where also a psychoanalytic perspective could really contribute insight uh, because it offers an alternative perspective which, you know, doesn't reduce a phenomena to either either the mind or the body, um, and because like medicine fails with these types of symptoms, 
which we see in the fact that they're diagnosed as medically unexplained symptoms, mm-hmm. MUS. Um, uh, so yeah, so I wanted to explore both the uh, yeah the the link between medicine and psychoanalysis, and then uh, something that was like oh what's going on here. Um, yeah, because then, I haven't really seen literature on like fatigue in in psychoanalysis so much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just, it's something that's new, and people haven't really, I think, caught up with with it. Um, although I guess you can see it like in other areas. Um, uh, you know, like the, there's still a structure, but the content sort of changes, which is, uh, yeah, uh, Lacan's, yeah, how Lacan also would kind of conceptualize it. Um, so yeah, then I thought like yeah, I thought fatigue because it was becoming this sort of uh, uh, new epidemic, you know, sort of uh, the new normal. Um, uh, it, yeah, like every like every time someone asks me what I do my PhD in, and then I say fatigue, uh, and it's sometimes strangers or it could be anyone, but uh, it feels like all of them are saying like, oh, you can interview me for your study because I have fatigue, and like I'm an expert in it in, in terms of experiences. Um, yeah, everyone but can I never, relate. Yeah, yeah, but then I never really know how serious they are. You know, like is this something we we just say as like. Sometimes I catch myself saying that too, like, oh, I'm tired today. But then, then I'm thinking, like, I'm not actually tired. It's just something that I say. <laughs> um, or, yeah, th- yeah, I just don't know how, you know, how much of a problem it is in their lives. Um, but it's certainly really fascinating, uh, that aspect of it. Uh, but then I guess I'm also interested in why it's become more intense, uh, sort of more of a problem for some people. Um, because those are the people that I interviewed for my study. Um and uh, and yeah, that's sort of how I got into it. Uh, so yeah, I interviewed nine people uh, and looking at their interviews through uh, Lacanian theory. Um, and yeah, Lacanian theory because it it's, it offers this sort of alternative uh, that I said it doesn't reduce uh, a phenomena to the mind or the body, and uh, and likewise it doesn't reduce the individual to either you know the separated, isolated individual who's yeah, that's separate from society um, but neither does it reduce it to a pure effect of of society you know it's kind of like on the border and um, inseparable from uh, yeah social influences so it, it really does allow this uh, in-depth perspective of the interaction between the two um, and uh, and yeah like I had no idea what uh, like I had no idea the area of fatigue really before I got into it, and I can't remember what I thought about it. Like my view on, on it, uh, uh, like yeah, before I started researching, I think it was quite simple. It was just like, oh, this is going to be another project about depression. Or I was also kind of on that mind-body divide, and like you know the, the talk about psychosomatic, uh, symptoms and things like that. Uh, but it just turned out to be something a lot more complex you know and really interesting uh what have you found like, yeah. um so yeah i um i uh yes i'm looking at uh at it as uh, it being a sort of uh, unconscious refusal to the uh, to the demand for constant productivity and and presence that we kind of see with uh, late capitalism today um and uh, and yeah with it's not just productivity in terms of uh, working, although that's a big part of it, but it seems to be that, uh, you know, influenced by consumer culture that uh, everything has become a sort of demand or, uh, you know, every little single thing has become a, a dreadful task to be carried out in the name of productivity. Um, so it's kind of like, yeah, we're supposed to work, but then we're also supposed to socialize and uh, enjoy, you know, this whole uh, really relax and uh, uh, learn, go to the university and learn. But even if we don't go to the university, we should still learn. Uh, so it's sort of that uh, what we see today, yeah, that the, the body is increasingly compared to a machine that, you know, it's ask, asking of us to be this constantly producing uh machine uh, who's engaged in multiple tasks simultaneously um I which is self-care feels like 
you have you have to take care of yourself and go to yoga, or go to the therapist so that you can be more productive, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's also another thing I'm looking at, yeah, because this um uh which is also come come to the forth in the interviews that uh, they, they there's also this demand to slow down um which uh yeah, which you see through yoga and it, it's become really popular today. But yeah, it just it just becomes another demand for productivity um and uh, and one that's also asking you to you know it's not asking you to actually slow down it's asking you to engage in yet another activity um that will produce a productive state of mind so it's just kind of i think yeah i think yeah, a lot of people like, can probably relate to that it's just becoming a bit too much and um, of course, also uh, pos- made possible by the advancement of technology um, that we're never quite off and we're kind of extended into our phones and, and uh, laptops and stuff. Um, so, yeah, and, but then I think certain, yeah, maybe certain people are, are also yeah feeling kind of stuck in this sort of a constant presence that we're supposed to... Uh, uh, be involved in and and and, and that we yeah, are that we think that is asked that's what it's asked asked of us um so it's a sort of resistance or kind of protest to this constant demand yeah i think i think so um so that's kind of uh yeah i'm kind of uh, it seems to it, that it might be one way to sort of unconsciously refuse this demand um uh, that's asking us to always be there uh, because it's also like um, sort of the distinction between work and, and private life is uh, seems to be disappearing and it all melts into a homogeneous reality um, and that's uh, yeah there's just not much space for 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 absence uh, and and that sort of that difference we need for identity you know it means that identity becomes uh, more difficult to create because uh, it is something we ultimately have to create. You know, we don't coincide naturally with uh, an identity, be that our bodies or a representation. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's uh, yeah, and, and then from like, like any perspective, uh, that sort of difference uh, for that you need the sort of absence and and what which he uh, talks about through through the concept of lack. Uh, that you need that distance or that that lack in order to get distance from others and, and to create your own desire. So I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at how it might be a way to um, say no to the body being reduced to or the subject being reduced to, you know, an object of productivity and to a machine, and in order to create uh, one's own desire, in a way. Yeah, take space for yourself. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's um, uh, yeah, but it, but yeah, it is not really like. Just want to make it clear, it's not like an un- unconscious, like you know what people usually uh, think about it as the hidden mess, the hidden in- intention of a person. But it's more like that there seems to be like a, a, a co- consciously uh, the attempt and uh, probably it, you know wanting to meet the, this demand. But like on another level, uh, it's they're, uh, they're unable to, or maybe they don't want to, and there's kind of this kind of conflict between two forces that uh, it's an impossibility kind of gets in, expressed in the body as fatigue. And it can be like self-defense, you know, it could be very protective of yourself. Yeah, 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 exactly, because um, it's kind of, yeah, because I think it, there's a sense in which, um, and I think increasingly, again, for, for many people, that uh, you kind of sucked into someone else's desire and what someone else wants to do for you, and you didn't really choose it. So you're kind of uh, starting to realize the external aspects of it, um, uh, which is the yeah, Lacan's notion of alienation, that, that uh, which is inevitable. Like, that's the way it is, that what's most... Uh, intimate is on the outside um, but that kind of becomes a realization that uh, you kind of yeah dragged into someone else's and then it becomes overwhelming with all the demands and things um, and yeah and Lacan's very useful because I'm looking at it through 
his concept of, of anorexia um as uh, and that's also what i noticed yeah like when you said there's not much in to written about fatigue but there is some about anorexia and i think they're they're uh they're not the same of course but i think that there is a, like a strong link between them um but uh but yeah so it's it's very useful because it's he's talking about anorexia not as literally not eating but more on a symbolic level as a, a refusal to uh, to be suffocated by someone else's demand um, or, or suffocated by someone else's desire through someone who bombards uh, someone with demands. Um, but it makes it clear that it's not a negation of an activity, but it's more uh, eating than nothing, as he puts it, uh, which as a way to introduce the absence and disappear from someone else's desire, but in order to create one's own desire or to create space for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, yeah, that's kind of been very interesting to compare it like that because then I'm, I'm seeing how fatigue might be a way of doing nothing uh, instead of eating nothing and then through that, creating that ab- absence, 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 uh, absence, yeah, um, which is needed to uh, uh, create, yeah, not create the identity, just, you know, catch a break. Um, yeah, give the uh, subject some room. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I always think of like when patients. I mean, everybody's always talking about procrastinating and how they they should have a better schedule of how they're doing things, and they always wait to the last minute and these kinds of things. And I see procrastination in much the same way. It's like maybe you're not lazy. <laughs> maybe there's a reason this is happening. You know. <laughs> yeah. What could yeah. the reason be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. I think there's, yeah, there's so many reasons, though, coming together, uh, or that kind of have to, you know, that Freud's concept of the overdetermination uh, of, yeah, a condition or something, that there needs to be several factors coming together simultaneously. So, yeah, anything that says this is. This is this is the reason. Of course, it's not uh, it's not the whole story. Um, um, yeah, and uh, but yeah, and then I'm also uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, I could go on forever, but uh, please stop. do. <laughs> um, yeah, it just yeah, it just kind of changed uh, my perspective of fatigue as well. Like it's because like we usually associate it with uh, a diminishment of tension uh, but I kind of think this moment of uh, trying to create space for uh, yourself is is more sort of uh, keeping energy to yourself instead of giving it to the other um, and it seems to be more an increase of energy uh, kind of as a way to signal the aliveness of the body um, and which I think at that stage at least like according to the interviews it's seems to be pain is a bit more effective in, in that respect. Um, but there's still like a point to be made that there is, you know, the pain of fatigue and uh, this sort of tension that's, uh, yeah, too much in, in the body. Um, yeah. So is it that chronic pain like coincides with fatigue? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, there um uh, they certainly seem to be uh, uh, highly interlinked and, and always mentioned together, uh, which of course uh, biomedicine is trying to separate through two distinct diagnoses, you know, fibromyalgia and, and chronic fatigue. Um, and uh, and yeah, it just it, it seems a bit more complicated than that. But but then I also think that yeah, a lot of the people who are diagnosed with fatigue, they're trying to. Uh, emphasize other symptoms as well uh, and not just be reduced to fatigue because yeah they don't want to be considered lazy and things like that uh, but yeah there, yeah this seems to be like both of them are quite like prevalent um, but then that's not yeah that's that's only one story of it and then there's of course the uh, I think the other aspect uh, where fatigue sort of becomes uh, what we usually, or sort of moment of refusal, I think, where it becomes what we usually associate with it, with the sort of shutting off. Uh, so, like trying to um, shut off 
or just escape from uh, life and you know language itself when when things you know the demands are contradictory uh which i think is something also coming to the fore a lot more today you know it's it's uh, we're bombarded with all this information but there's so much contradictory information um you know is it healthy to have a glass of wine a day or not um who knows <laughs> Um, so I think, yeah, fatigue could be then a way to sort of just shut off the the interpretive aspect of language, you know, thinking, um, uh, not having to kind of make that decision when it becomes hard and, uh, you know, shut off responsibility, shutting off the body in terms of the numbing, kind of numbing the body uh, into nothingness. Um, uh, yeah, sort of removing any tension and affect and... Uh, feelings or any discomfort sort of uh, which is of course not possible it's like the uh, attempt to um, and which I'm looking through uh, with the use of Lacan's concept of um, um, the desire to sleep uh, which he talks about in seminar 19 uh, which it's basically the yeah the the fantasy that he's describing as a sort of uh, trying to become one with um, like with an object uh, where there's no ambiguity as he says uh, so I think that's kind of that can be related to um, like also like eating disorders and addictions where you know you're trying to indulge in this object which uh, removes um, yeah, removes tension and and you, forget, you can forget you have a body and it's a place of bliss and and uh, things like that which in the case for fatigue would be the sleeping becomes that sort of a promise of um uh yeah nirvana or however to it all off. yeah yeah but then it's not really yeah it's not really sleeping though like it's not necessarily that people sleep more um uh, although that, of course, that could be the case and probably is for a lot of people, but uh, it's more like the urge to sleep, you know, that you, all you want to do is just close your eyes and go to bed and disappear. Like that would solve it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Where do dreams come in with all of this? Uh, dreams, oof, that's a tough question. <laughs> uh, I don't know, I'm not, uh, what do as in like literally dreaming has anybody brought it up anybody you interviewed or no uh no not not a single person um yeah because uh, yeah when i think of lacan and it means dreaming i always think of like day fantasizing things um but yeah none of them have it, it, like the people that i diagnosed uh, diagnose, uh, that i interviewed they were all diagnosed with uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and was also called myalgic encephalomyelitis uh, ME um, and uh, yeah, and they were all very much more or less uh, they were all uh, of the thinking that the, what was happening to their bodies was something uh, or organic you know that it was a medical condition um, which is why they preferred the term ME uh, because it literally means uh, inflammation of the brain and spinal cord. Um, so it was, uh, yeah. I mean, some weren't, yeah, very open to to the fact that it could be like caused by any psychological factors. Um, but uh, uh, others were more open. But still, yeah, I think uh, there was still this wanting to be recognized as having something. Uh, real because yeah if, if today it's kind of considered if you have a mental disorder and everything that doesn't fit into this biomedical mod model gets assigned automatically assigned to that uh, category and it's considered not to exist um so yeah so and it's a real shame that uh, mds don't refer out <laughs> anymore so much it seems they used to if they didn't find something physically causing it they would refer people out uh, so that they could try to find the root of the cause in other areas but it doesn't seem yeah. to be the case so much anymore yeah no it's just this dismissive category that's just everything that doesn't fit into it uh, you know it can't be proven by images and numbers produced by uh, 
the machines that they're using. Um, yeah, it all gets, yeah, it's just, oh, it's, uh, you know, that there's nothing wrong with you is what they're uh, kind of told implicitly or explicitly, um, which is very, yeah, it's just very dismissive. It just stops any other exploration of, and especially yeah, the subjective factors that um, might be involved uh, or that are involved. Um, so how has this journey been researching this for you? Sorry. How has this been, this journey researching this for you? Um, it's been uh, very, very difficult um, because uh, because it just it's, it has so many uh, aspects to it. Uh, I feel like that like first I have the interviews and uh, the nine participants are quite a lot as well. Uh, where I've kind of like had to narrow it down to seven for the analysis and uh, just to make it more um, like bearable, uh, manageable. But it's still so many people when you're looking at something so in depth, mm-hmm. uh, and just that takes a really long time to go through and to look at their interviews and to uh, really try to stay close to the discourse and the structure of it and um, yeah, look at sort of what how their discourse is structured um and uh and then yeah then there's the the theory aspect which is a phd in itself uh to sort of interpret lacanian theory uh because it's not like i can be like oh yeah, i'm gonna use the drive uh, now and uh just gonna have this understanding of it it's like no you have to actually interpret what the drive is there are a lot of accounts of it and uh, some contradictory and then you have to just yeah that's been uh, and I'm mentioning the drive because that's the most difficult thing I've, I've have had difficulties with um, so yeah that that in itself is really overwhelming uh, and takes a really long time uh, to navigate and then there's the, the, the other aspect of that I have to see how the, how well the theory kind of explains what's going on in the interviews um, and that's also incredibly difficult to to uh, sort of yeah in, integrate the two in a way. Um, so yeah, very challenging. How did <laughs> but, you? But very pleasant. Yeah, no, it yeah. sounds really fascinating. But yeah, right. like a lot of work, a lot of research. How did you yeah. become interested in doing this PhD in Lacanian psychoanalysis in the first place? Uh, yeah, so uh, that's a good question. Um, I. Uh, yes, I think it was when I moved to uh, Scotland from Sweden to um, study psychology for my undergraduate degree. And I did that because it was free and because um, uh, I thought I wanted to become a psychologist. Um, But thank God I was introduced to psychoanalysis during uh, my third year of undergraduate studies. so yeah, so we were all kind of forcibly introduced to it. Uh, it was a an oblig- obligatory research module where we all had to do a, a piece, a research piece on uh, well on, on yeah anything, but uh, using Lacanian theory, mm. uh, and that was taught by Callum Neal, who's uh, my current PhD uh, supervisor, and he was my supervisor for my uh, undergraduate uh, honors project. Um, but yeah, like the way that uh, Callum introduced it was just in a really accessible, critical, and uh, eventually very powerful way. It just kind of opened up a whole new perspective and uh, you know, changed my life. Uh, not to try to sound too cheesy, um, but yeah, it was, because it was he was doing it from a very critical perspective. Uh, he was comparing the assumptions of uh, psychology with the assumptions of psychoanalysis uh, and sort of comparing their philosophical foundations. Uh, so yeah, through the works of, uh, for example, Descartes, uh, David Hume, uh, Hegel, and Freud and Lacan, so he went through it, um, went through quite a lot. Um, and uh, and yeah, just uh, that just made you question like everything that you, you you thought you knew about the the uh, 
the human being through psychology, you know, made you question the foundation of psychology, uh, but not just that, you know, the, of your viewpoint of life, you know, that you've had up until that point, and, uh, and which I thought, you know, was a solid, quite a solid perspective of what human nature is, uh, especially like through psychology. I was obviously uh, interested in, in finding out uh, like, yeah, what is it? Um, so, so yeah, then it made you question it, and then you were like, wait a second, like, the assumptions of psychology are quite dodgy, um, and it only off only really offers a narrow perspective, uh, because then you were presented with the, especially Lacan, what I think is a very convincing account of human nature, uh, and you know all these rich details around complexities and and the contradictions which. A lot of other fields are trying to eradicate. It was just um, really appealing to me, even though, like, yeah, like it was kind of like I don't, I, I, I couldn't unlearn what I had learned. You know, I couldn't go back to the things, to the way things were, and close my eyes to the fact that I think that this was a very close account to how life works. Um, even though, like, yeah, it made my life more complicating because uh, <laughs> it's not a comfortable, it's not always a comfortable thing to be. Uh, engaging with Lacanian theory um, but that's also the overwhelming aspect of it is also what makes it so so wonderful that is very stimulating you know the fact that there are several interpretations and there is not just one valid interpretation uh, that you know the, the aspect of the real which appealed to me which I suppose appeals to a lot of people um, that everything can't be explained, uh, that life is impossible, but it's less impossible if you focus on language, you know, which is the way that uh, our experiences and culture and interactions are mediated. Um, so yeah, I really uh, like that. And I think, yeah, I think it also kind of brought together two areas which I found very fascinating, uh, which I've, like, for my life, I, I always uh, was really drawn to, like, language and philosophy. Uh, but, of course, it was nothing that I pursued because I thought you couldn't make a career out of it. Um, but, yeah, so then Lacan kind of brought them together in a very interesting way, uh, and I think that really appealed to me. Um, it's kind of like you're... Uh, you're a Lacanian before you know you're a Lacanian. Um, and yeah, then some, then yeah, well, I'm just going through like what I like about it, but that's kind of what I, what, uh, what made me stick to it. It's um, also the fact that, uh, yeah, that there isn't a totalizing uh, answer means that it's really rich and really stimulating. Uh, and the fact that you're continually learning uh, you know, like I was in a lecture five years ago, I was mind blown, and I still go to lectures now, and I'm mind blown. Uh, that it just, it's not, it's not that it uh, shifted my perspective then, and then up till then, I've had this one perspective on life with, you know, a Lacanian perspective. Uh, but it's the fact that it uh, continually makes you shift perspective. Uh, and, and you know you're continually mind blown and, and that's what I really love about it uh, this never ending learning process um, no that's wonderful and that's wonderful that Callum is introducing it in undergrad bravo yeah, yeah even though so, some other students probably wouldn't <laughs> you know, it's a really frustrating moment for some for me too of course yeah but that's great no, yeah. because I mean, I got th all the way through a PhD and had never been exposed to Lacan. I didn't hear about oh. Lacan until I got to New York. So mm. it was after I had graduated. Mm. So that's great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was kind of, it's a, the university I go to, Edinburgh Napier University, is a smaller one. So I think that was kind of uh, tolerated because, yeah, you, you don't see that in other um, departments, especially in psychology, uh, you don't really see that anywhere. I think in the UK, it's just the, you know, the literature and, and uh, films where they might be introduced to it. Uh, but yeah, we were also ha we were lucky to be introduced to it by Callum, who really knows his Lacan, you know, 
Um, so yeah, that was very. Yeah, I uh, just started watch- the first of their book series, um, yeah. and I'm reading I'm- each essay with the with the essay from the Acree and it's so well done I feel like it's gonna be like a staple in the field basically from now on when Lacan's taught you know yeah yeah that's great that book is great um it's I wish I had I wish it was there you know when I started reading the Acree but but yeah it's great that they're they're doing that and so you're gonna go to the Acree conference in uh, Pittsburgh this fall right uh, yeah, 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 that is uh, the plan. No, yeah, I'm definitely going um, to present what? I'm not so sure yet, <laughs> yet. but um, no, of course it's my research, but um, the specifics, I'm not so sure. But yeah, yeah I went to the last one in um, in Belgium, which I know that uh, Stain talked a little bit about uh, when he was doing the podcast with you. Um, and yeah, I had a opportunity to present at that one uh, which was a great uh, very very great opportunity um, and the, yeah the conference was just really it, had, it was a really open atmosphere um, where yeah it was kind of like there were people from all stages of, of uh, being engaged with Lacan you know there were some really big names who've been doing it for years and then there were uh, people like me who you know just kind of starting out and uh, but there wasn't this uh, sort of it was like people were interested in what everyone had to say you know regardless and it was a very uh, you know have, having uh, open discussions and very friendly atmosphere so yeah very much looking forward to the next one I wonder if that sort of um, like respect for everybody at all their levels of formation uh, is tied in with like the idea of not having such an institutional hierarchical structure. You know, I hadn't really thought about it before, but it seems like uh, they kind of go together. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, it could be. Um, and it does seem like, uh, yeah, in general, I think uh, people are trying to, well, I don't know if it may be that related, but people are trying to make it more accessible. And yeah, it's not this, what people, I think, some people would think of Lacan's uh, uh, people, uh, a, a closed sort of elitist group who uh, just talk a lot of mumbo-jumbo, which it could be. Uh, you know, we see that sometimes, but it just seems to be that this trend uh, towards it bec- becoming more accessible um, and people sort of try interacting more with other fields and things, uh, which is great, I think. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of Lacanians at like interdisciplinary conferences. Yeah. Point. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, yeah, in the reception of Lacan also. Um, well, I don't know, at least from what I've seen. Yeah, in uh, other disciplines. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I think the and that's what I'm trying to do, like in the book that I'm writing currently, is like explaining using the concepts, um, and like using like saying the names of the different kinds of terms but making sure to explain like how they're utilized and show that in different ways so that people can understand it and uh, get something out of it even if they aren't familiar with the terms already. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's uh, I also I was also try to when I present even at this this conference like I knew I, I uh, most people would be familiar with uh, Lacan, but I still try to, yeah, which means that you don't have to explain every term, so that's good, but you, I still try to make it, you know, somewhat accessible, uh, because my meaning of, my, my take on a, a certain concept might probably not the same as someone else's, so, um, yeah, you can't always assume, even, yeah, in, such, mm, mm. even in such an environment. <laughs> to go back to my topic, because I, um, just, just to mention that, that it's a, there is a, because uh, I mentioned that a condition sort of overdetermined several factors, um, but also that there is sort of this this contradiction in it that sort of I think so kind of deserves a bit of attention because when people focus on a condition, sometimes it feels like uh, uh, not so much in the Lacanian field, but in the Lacanian field as well, that people kind of tend to focus on either one side. Or the other, or they kind of mention a contradiction, but then, um, 
but then kind of yeah still emphasize one side and don't really explore the contradiction and I that yeah is something that I'm trying to uh, look at more which is not a comfortable thing to do because it's very difficult um, uh, but it's very fascinating so I thought yeah I thought just and that's also where I'm like wow this is a very complex area where uh, you know fatigue is both this sort of trying to uh, use attention to signal the presence of, of uh, the body or the subject and and but then also just trying to kind of disappear into this hole of nothingness and uh, numbing into this hole of nothingness so um, so yeah I find I find that uh, it's difficult, but it's very fascinating. Um, and I'm kind of looking at that through also um, like a mourning, the cosmos of mourning, uh, and uh, and I guess just the, the demand for a, a biomedical diagnosis as well, sort of how uh, certain po- impossibilities play out through those uh, things. It's, it's a really good point, like what you brought up earlier with condensation and how things are so multiply determined um, and that they're usually, well, always symptoms are fulfilling many functions at once. Um, and so this mm. idea that you can like have a diagnosis or like this solved like biologically condoned problem, like this is it and that's the solution, mm-hmm. um, doesn't work usually. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and people want people people want it, but they don't want it as well, and that's kind of another thing that I'm also kind of seeing in the interviews, and especially uh, for for maybe some more than others that you know, and, and it's very prevalent uh, with uh, those who are diagnosed with it that they're they have um, you know campaigns for people to take it seriously and to be recognized as a um, a medical condition uh, or something that is real and deserves you know attention and uh, appropriate treatments and stuff but um, but then yeah there's like the uh, demand for this but there's also the impossibility is kind of when you're refusing if like if there's a refusal for the for the symbolic world you know and society and life then it kind of presents an impossible situation where uh, you're demanding something from a, a system of knowledge which uh, you're, uh, you're yeah, well you're refusing the system of knowledge that you're relying on for recognition so it's kind of like this consciously demanding an answer but then unconsciously not really tolerating it or uh, not wanting it so uh, that also seems to be uh, something going on and yeah just the quick fixes today uh, the people think that people just want to get rid of problems quickly uh, and uh, they do but I you know there's also that other uncomfortable area where they don't really want to um, to a certain extent you know yeah or it's serving a purpose mm. how do you see it tied into mourning um yeah so that's uh, uh how do I explain that? Um, well, yeah. So um, I noticed that, uh, like all, pr- pretty much all the participants I interviewed, that they had some sort of uh, loss, a death of a loved one, or a separation, or uh, you know something. Um, uh, they lost something, kind of at the onset or around the onset of their condition. Uh, so I was kind of like. Uh, playing around with the possibility that it, it might be a failure of mourning um, where uh, which would which would shed light on the contradiction that you know trying to uh, signal the presence as maybe in a way to trying to keep the a person alive but at the same time uh, well the con I need to explain the concept of mourning from uh, Freud and Lacan which is uh, which is not dealing with a uh, a loss, uh, an absence, uh, as we would normally think of it, uh, but it's dealing with, um, uh, as yeah, as Freud said, it's not the person that we lost, but the ideas related to the person, you know, that kind of came to play a, a huge role in our identities, uh, but that we don't know that what those ideas were, and we don't know what we lost in the other person. 
which then Lacan comes to emphasize that it is a, a presence that we're dealing with, um, the presence of, of these ideas, and uh, but which are ultimately incomprehensible. So it's a presence of an absence, uh, just the way he's putting it. Uh, so I think that I just thought that was kind of appropriate and and kind of that does shed light on that contradiction that trying to hold the keep the person alive but then trying to get rid of this incomprehensible too muchness tension uh, because yeah it just it doesn't make sense or um, yeah and then and then I guess I'm also like when it comes to ideas I'm also kind of seeing how. Um, how the the idea of like the, the the body of a machine, which is, I think, what uh, what is refused, but at the same time, it seems to be um, a failed separation from that idea, which I think you can compare to mourning. Um, that uh, you know, you're instead of letting go of that idea that uh, your body was a machine, uh, and you know it's constantly producing that could just keep going and keep going and this hardworking person, uh, you know, instead of letting go of that idea, uh, you're kind of like holding on to it and, and reinforcing it instead by, uh, by, 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 especially by externalizing responsibility onto this bio, biomedical diagnosis and by the biological body uh, as, you know, something that functions uh, without the involvement of the psyche. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like yeah, how it's uh, holding on to that idea that the body can be a machine, uh, which I think yeah, the more you believe in it, then maybe the more uh, uh, conflict there will be when you're kind of unable to uphold that ideal. Um, yeah, which is maybe not the greatest way to explain it, but no, I think it's great. I can't wait to read your book. This is going to be a oh, yeah. book. Uh, <laughs> yes, and that's that's the hope. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully a book where, because um, right now I guess because the participants are talking a lot about their interactions with, um, with the doctors and things. I'm focusing it on the discourse of science, um, and I'm not really like, of course, I am also linking it to certain societal issues uh, or aspects. As, as related to late capitalism, uh, but it's not the focus of my PhD. So I think that I want to continue looking into that after the research, especially more that aspect with uh, late capitalism, because uh, I think I find it very interesting uh, perspective. Yeah, for sure. It reminds me of um, Todd McGowan's work. He writes a lot about uh, like Lacanian psychoanalysis and late capitalism and mm. uh, Foucault and like the biopower yeah making us a machine concept mm. yeah 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 I um I love yeah McGowan's work and but I I do have to kind of embrace myself with like yeah the, it's such a, a huge area you know to explore and um I need to kind of be like, okay, just uh, get through this first, focus. and then I can, focus, <laughs> yeah, then I can focus more on, on that. Uh, because yeah, I did a seminar on that for Lacan in Scotland um, uh, in what was it? May, I think. Um, and that kind of because I focused it on that because I thought that people would be more interested if it was uh, angled more from a, a social cultural perspective. Um, and yeah, it just. Uh, it made me really like I had been linking things, of course, with late capitalism and things, but it really made me have have the time to sit down and be like working out so, some details more. And uh, yeah, I found it very fascinating. And just look and looking at it from that angle was also kind of provi provided it with a new light. Um, that could be your next book. Yes, that would be <laughs> <laughs> my next book. <laughs> Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to make sure we touched on? Um, I don't think so. Or anything that, that comes to mind? Any dreams? Any dreams? <laughs> <laughs> well, last night I had a dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
no, no dreams. <laughs> uh, except for the yeah, dream to uh, what comes after the PhD and things. But yeah, um, finish your dissertation. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I am kind of uh, yeah, I'm excited for like uh, what's coming next and uh, the sort of um, uh, yeah, I've had quite a positive. Uh, interaction w- from presenting my my research and, and at the at the seminar as well that I did uh, and I think that's I think that's great and th- that's kind of what I wanted with the PhD too was to kind of have that dialogue with uh, with other areas and not stay within the you know the psychoanalytic bubble but um, and that's why I and that's why I'm also involved in the kind of Scotland kind of um, and and reg- organizing regular seminars. Uh, to kind of make it more, um, yeah, make it more accessible to people who, who maybe want to learn about it or just uh, want to learn about uh, a topic, uh, because that's kind of what I saw in my seminar. There were so many different uh, people there with so like so many different backgrounds uh, from different areas of uh, different areas of academia, but also people who weren't in academia, and there were some people who are diagnosed uh, clin- yeah clinically diagnosed with fatigue um so it was great to have that interaction where you sort of uh, yeah it's not just let's bring out this perspective to people you know it's a sort of religious thing but to have that dialogue where we are all learning from each other uh where the audience response is the, another angle to it so mm-hmm. um do you want to say a little bit about the kind of Scotland uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and uh, yeah. So it was founded by uh, Callum Neal, um, uh, who's the director of it, um, and it started. Yeah, it started kind of I think with him inviting people that he knew. Uh, so I think the first person who came was Danny Nobis. Uh, I think like three years ago, he did he did an excellent lecture on poetry and. Uh, 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 poetry and yeah, psychoanalysis, um, but I think at that point we weren't established as Lacan in Scotland. But it was after that that Callum was like, "Oh, let's let's organize these seminars regularly," uh, and uh, I was like, "Yeah, let's do it," and started setting up a website uh, with the help from my father. He wanted me to say that uh, my father. <laughs> um, and and yeah, now I'm like very much involved in it. Uh, so like uh, running sort of the social media presence and uh, uh, inviting speakers and organizing their trips and things. Um, but yeah, it started started really slow with just a seminar here and there, and it kind of picked up a little bit once Callum had uh, an ambitious group of students, uh, around like uh, yeah, when he was teaching them and they. They were also very keen to get more involved in Lacan and learn more, um, which, uh, yeah, because, yeah, I mean, at the university, you know, there were only two courses, so it wasn't like we were uh, bombarded by uh, all this Lacanian theory. Um, So, yeah, so then we started, like, trying to make them more regularly and saying, like, let's do them ourselves if no one else is coming. Uh, to speak, uh, so like Claudia Di, Di Gianfrancesco, she did a few, and Callum, and then I did one last uh, May. Um, but it really picked up and grew once uh, we, uh, well, once uh, a film lecture studies, uh, David Sorfa from University of Edinburgh, which is the bigger, uh, well, the biggest university in Edinburgh, uh, when he started getting involved and cooperated. Um, so he was, um, uh, we were, he was hosting our events there. And just from that moment, like our numbers really increased sort of drastically. We had like 60 to 100 people at our, at our seminars. Um, so that was great. And just having another person sort of advertise it and uh, adver- having a group of other students, you know, because film studies, they're introduced to it and uh, they're familiar with it, but maybe they don't have that, uh, you know, in-depth uh, sort of knowledge of it. Um, 
so so although that's an assumption i don't really know what they're doing um but but yeah it was really uh helpful just to have another person on board um with bringing his group into it uh but i was a bit uh, i was a bit worried that oh we're gonna have to have all our events on movies so, so that people come along because it wasn't it was when we started doing these uh talks based on on movies and, and we and tv shows we did black mirror uh as well it was yeah when we started that that people started to really come along um so, so and and I think also because we had an event on like medicine which wasn't very uh well attended as the other ones um so that's kind of where uh, yeah I thought like okay we're going to have to uh just do movies uh, and and I also actually for my talk uh, I also thought try to link it with a movie that I, uh but then I just couldn't I couldn't find any like I couldn't think of any that would kind of illustrate what I was going to talk about um so uh, so yeah but it turned out that it wasn't the case I think with the medicine event it was uh, a bit controversial uh, topic so uh, that I think that played a huge role uh, and then yeah then people came along to my fatigue my fatigue seminar and fatigue fatigue seminar um, and uh, and then the last one we had was in June with Annie G Rogers uh, who came to do a really excellent one on uh, a clinical approach, a Lacanian clinical clinical approach to dreams and the unconscious, uh, and that was a, cl- clearly a very clinical one because she uh, she also presented uh, two case studies um, or two cases to uh, yeah in relation to theory, uh, but yeah, it turns out that a hundred people came along to that and that. Pe- they were still interested, so that really, like, uh, yeah, it just, I really get excited about these things when people come along to something for the curiosity and passion of a topic, you know, not necessarily coming for the psychoanalytic component, but for the topic, mm. and that's kind of like, yeah, that's what we're, we're seeing, that, you know, in the in that seminar in Annis one, there was someone, a CBT, some CBT therapists there, and you know some Jungians who were who were, Jungians who were reading Jung maybe on their spare time, and so there was like this, yeah, really a mix of people that we see at our events. I'm not sure where they're coming from, but it's uh, it's great That's to great. see, them. yeah, yeah, and that they're kind of coming in with their perspective in the discussions, and we're having this dialogue with, like, comparing Lacan with, you know, what is it. Uh, and it's easier to compare it with what the perspective that you know of already. Um, so yeah, it's kind of uh, that, and that was the aim of Lacan in Scotland was to, uh, you know, not to already gather the the people who were to gather the people who are already familiar with it, so that we could, you know, that would be kind of a, a reading group, uh, which wouldn't be a very big reading group. Uh, but yeah, it was sort of to to get involved. Uh, to get other people involved and uh, to just explore topics from a different angles because that's what Lacan brings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so your so your events are open to whoever is interested in coming. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and they kind of spread randomly. Sometimes I ask people how they how did they hear about the event, and they're like, oh, I saw it through Facebook, uh, just, or someone liking. Um, it's what, what some of someone's friend liking the uh, or you know clicking interested in it and then they see it because uh, I think yeah there's sometimes people just bring it along their family members and like people who never uh, uh, never n- not familiar at all with psychoanalysis uh, so yeah I think that was that's great that it's taking off and it's uh, uh, becoming that so hopefully we can keep it up that's great. That's mm. what I'm going to have to do here in Stockholm. Yes. <laughs> Lacan in Stockholm. Lacan in Stockholm, yeah. <laughs> or Sweden. Go bigger. Yeah, Lacan in Sweden. But there are yeah. some Lacanians in Sweden, so I don't want to tep- step on anybody's toes, but maybe we can coordinate. Oh, yeah. Work yeah. together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be great. <laughs> Yeah, because I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking of maybe starting like a monthly study group just to like see who's interested and then uh, start inviting people. Like you said, Callum did like invite Danny Nobis or Darian Leader or 
Christine or, yeah. you know, whoever yes. wants to come and talk to the Swedes about Lacan. Yeah, yeah, please do that. I am 100% on board. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Amanda Dieserold, a PhD candidate at Edinburgh Napier University. Her research looks at the symptomatology of fatigue from a Lacanian psychoanalytic perspective. For more, please visit lacaninscotland.com. Our publisher's website, tripart.net, or my website, drvanessasinclair.net.
perceptual field. that way. 